there's a really interesting change happening in business. There's clearly a growing awareness in the biggest companies that they have to think differently about the value they provide society or the value and that they create in business. There was a news item last week that I've I've got an article coming out about soon that was about the business roundtable, this big lobbying group, 200 CEOs of some of the world's biggest companies put out this statement that said, we're no longer going to focus just on shareholder return. That's been the core to our principles as this lobbying group for 25 years. We're going to think about stakeholders, communities, employees, the world. Um, That was kind of a big shift. So there's been clearly a change in the discussion, but we're still fundamentally trapped in this kind of this system, especially for public companies of, you know, quarterly profits, very short term thinking where the investment community needs to see, you know, a certain set of metrics that makes it incredibly difficult to invest for the long term. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. Jerry Maguire won a client. He only had to say one thing. Show me the money! And that's really what it comes down to when it comes to changing the world is changing the incentive. Today, we've got somebody who's focused on that and much more. Andrew Winston. He's the author of The Big Pivot and Green Recovery and co-author of Green to Gold. Basically, this guy helps companies go green, become sustainable, and make it into successful business in the process. He's a globally recognized expert when it comes to green business and appeared in The Wall Street Journal, Time, New York Times, in addition to being a frequent speaker, director of corporate environmental strategy at Yale's School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, and recently named Planet Defender by Rock the Earth. Today, we break it down and discuss how to redesign the economy and stock markets to incentivize a better future. What are the biggest megatrends affecting us going forward? Why eating less meat is the biggest thing you can do now to fight climate change? Why the U.S. doesn't do near enough for infrastructure? What you should really know about the Green New Deal? And why, despite everything else, Andrew is optimistic Optimism's infectious, and Andrew's got a lot of it, so I know you guys like this. Before you do, make sure you hop on over to disruptors.fm slash free. You can download a free copy of my book and also unlock some other freebies and bonuses only available to our newsletter. We only send out notices about the episodes and the other occasionally awesome thing that we think you guys will love. Again, disruptors.fm, throw your email. And now, without further ado, I give you Andrew Winston. Do you meditate? I know I do, and we've talked about it a ton on the podcast. The benefits are enormous. We had Ariel Garten on the program a while back, and she founded this company called Muse. They make a neurofeedback, i.e. brain-sensing device that helps meditators, anyone really, learn to control their mind and quiet their thoughts. The science is great, and neurofeedback helps meditators achieve zen-level results in less time. I'm a big fan of meditation, as you guys probably know, and Muse is hooking listeners up with 15% off when they use our link. Disruptors.fm slash Muse. That's M-U-S-E. Disruptors.fm slash Muse. If you want to take your meditation and mind to the next level. You probably know I'm big on biohacking and trying to make myself the best I can be. That's why I'm excited about what the guys at Neurohacker Collective and Daniel Schmachtenberger, who was previously on the podcast, are doing. They're some of the smartest biohackers on the planet, and their Qualia line of brain-enhancing nootropics make it obvious why. You guys can get 15% off any order, or with a subscription, 50% off and 15% off every future order by going to disruptors.fm slash qualia, that's Q-U-A-L-I-A, and using coupon code disruptors at disruptors we're big on health and biotech for a reason it amplifies everything disruptors.fm qualia use coupon code disruptors 
And now, let's get on with the program. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So I hear 40% of people that die from heart attacks, they die on the first one. This was an interesting stat you kick off your talks with. Tell me the genesis of this and why we need to pivot. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. That is how I started my TED Talks originally was with that stat. I just heard it from a friend of mine, college friend who's a cardiologist. And then I, I saw Dr. Oz on TV saying the same thing. And it's it, it actually turns out to be kind of one of those anecdotal statistics in the cardiology community, but they kind of know it. They kind of know that there's just a group of people who just dropped dead, unfortunately, and we've all known known people. And the, the reason I start with this, it's a shocking, I mean, it's a shocking statistic, but I use it as a as a way to say that, you know, there's there's times where things are complete surprises and there's no preparation, but there's lots of people who are hit with a health problem where there, where there were warning signs, right? I mean, there was obesity or diabetes or family history and they had some warning. And, and I use it as kind of an intro to say, like, we are facing uh, on the planet right now some incredibly serious diagnoses from the world scientists. And just you look out the window and you can see what we're facing a lot of the time. And we have warning signs. We've been given these, these warning signs and we haven't really quite acted on them yet. I think we're mobilizing now in a very different way than we have in the past, but we've ignored until it's very, very late. And just like with your health, it's a dangerous way to go. So it's, you know, I use it as a way to say we need to really change our lives the way someone who's been given a serious health diagnosis realizes, hey, I got to change my diet. I got to exercise more. I got to really shift the way I do things. And, and that's kind of what I'm saying about the way business operates today and the way we lead our lives. Things have to change. Do you think we get close enough to that near-death experience for people to be willing <laughs> to change? Or is it a is it a, a kick the bucket kind of deal? Yeah, I mean, look, it, you know, if we're talking, it depends on the problem we're talking about. The the you know the really big mega challenges, you know, mega trends that I spend my time on, uh, you know, climate change is the number one. There are others that are that are pressing too. You know, inequality is clearly um, a challenge to our society right now. Water issues around the world are growing. Biodiversity. I mean, there's there's really big challenges. But you know, you take just the climate issue, and there's always been discussion in the in the community of people who who've made this their career to kind of work on these issues about like what's our 9/11? What's the thing that changes us fundamentally? And I'm not sure there is any one thing because arguably we've had plenty of those, right? We've had hurricanes like Katrina and Sandy. We've had hurricanes wipe out a majority of Puerto Rico, you know, a couple of years ago, huge typhoons in Asia, storms like we've never seen, heat waves. So they kind of keep coming. And I think it's not like there's any one moment, but it, it builds so that there's, there's just this increasing belief around the world that things are serious and that we got to get going. I mean, the problem is, you know, humanities, we're really adaptable, right? We're, we, we adapt very well to change, loss, and, and that's a very good thing for our survival, but sometimes it's bad because we kind of just get used to the new normal without realizing that we're like the frog in the proverbial pot and it's starting to boil and we really need to kind of get moving. That's what I was just about to ask you. How do we avoid the, the increasing expectations of, well, this is just the new normal. Well, this is just the new normal. It's, it's the slippery slope to shit we're yeah. fucked. How yeah. Well, and that's the problem is you, you've seen this, I think, evolution of the the climate denial world, the people that are really, you know, it's a range of people from ones just absolutely thinking it's a hoax, which unfortunately seems to be the, the president of the United States at the moment, but also people that, that have a kind of a, a lesser version of denial on, on climate issues, which is that we should just go slow or we can't really know exactly what will happen. And, and they kind of like just keep, keep kicking the can down the road. And the problem is with something like climate change, 
by the time it's crystal clear, it's way too late. You know, but and, and it's already pretty clear now. But by the time you know Miami's unlivable because the oceans have have risen enough, it's kind of too late to do something about saving Miami. So you have to you have to take a much longer view and believe that. We need to make changes because it's good for risk management, it's good for our health, that there's a lot of good reasons to go down this path, regardless of how convinced you are that this is a problem. But it is a real challenge psychologically. It's, it's, it's a problem that's almost perfectly designed for the way we think as humans to ignore, because it's, it's large, it's long-term, it's spread out over all 7.3 billion of us, we all have some responsibility. It's just a perfectly designed problem. To ignore and say, I don't have to deal with this right now because it's not in my face all the time. What I like to say to deniers is regardless of whether or not humanity caused climate change, which hint, hint, they did. Right. Even if we didn't, I would be more scared. But just because I didn't decide to go next to the tiger doesn't mean I'm not going to run like hell away from the tiger. <laughs> I'm still right. next to a freaking tiger. And it's right. It's just one of those things. So I know you're trying to help change the change the narrative around this and yeah. change especially what companies are doing. I feel like the incentive structure is set up all wrong. Talk about the incentives and how we can change that and why you're so upset about all of these stock buybacks. <laughs> yeah, that's something I haven't talked about in a while. It's a good question. I, you know, well, look, we're, there's a really interesting change happening in business. There's clearly a growing awareness in the biggest companies that they have to think differently about the value they provide society or the value and that they create in business. There was a news item last week that I've, I've got an article coming out about soon that was about the business roundtable, this big lobbying group, 200 CEOs of some of the world's biggest companies put out this statement that said, we're no longer going to focus just on shareholder return. That's been the core to our principles as this lobbying group for 25 years. We're going to think about stakeholders, communities, employees, the world. Um, that was kind of a big shift. So there's been clearly a change in the discussion, but we're still fundamentally trapped in this kind of this system, especially for public companies of, you know, quarterly profits, very short-term thinking, where the investment community needs to see, you know, a certain set of metrics that makes it incredibly difficult to invest for the long term. And, and so the system is kind of broken. The stock buybacks are really a, you know, maybe a symptom of that kind of problem is that, you know, it, it's a, I think, a tremendous waste of capital for the, in, a lot, in a lot of ways for companies. They just keep taking, they took the big tax cut in the U.S. and they basically bought back stock. This is something companies have been doing to kind of prop up earnings for years. When there's a lot of things we need to invest in, companies could be investing in renewable energy, which they're doing a lot of now, but could do more of it. They could invest in making their businesses more resilient over the long haul, making their supply chains more stable, more hu more humane, paying people more up and down the supply chain. These are things they can invest in for the long term of their business, but instead they just keep buying back stock, which really just feeds the the very kind of rich shareholders and the top executives. It's not a, a, a very great way to develop a business for the long haul. So it's you know, I, I think, you know, sustainability issues, tackling climate change, these are long haul issues. These are l big, long term planning kind of issues. And we just have a system that incentivizes only focusing on the very short term. Yeah, we're I mean, we're built on a Twitter system, whereas China, <laughs> China is built on a dynasty system is more or less if you kind of yeah. oversimplify it. But I, I heard a stat once, there's something like 60% of public market CEOs off the record, of course, yeah. said that if they had the opportunity to invest money in guaranteed long-term future growth, or they could use that money to prop up the earnings essentially for their own bonuses, they yeah. they went for the bonuses. How do we fix yeah. that? I, I'm a firm believer yeah. that 
it's hard to outwork bad incentives, just like it's hard yeah. to outwork a bad diet. You're not going to lose weight if you're <laughs> eating junk or if you have it in yeah. the house. How do we change these incentives and what does that look like? Yeah, look, it's very difficult, right? It's a circular system because the, you know, the top executives and the CEO are basically compensated by the board and the board is generally populated by some of those same executives and then senior executives from other companies. So it's a very kind of circular, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of thing where they they set it up so the very top people in companies get paid an awful lot to do certain things, which is to kind of keep the stock price up. And then the investment community is kind of incentivized to do the same thing as well, to kind of show the returns of their of their investments. I mean, I don't know how you change those kinds of incentives in companies, except for changing kind of what drives company success. And I think part of the reason you're seeing these CEOs signing these statements about, hey, we have to think differently is because they're starting to feel real pressure from, say, employees. And there's a real talent war in the world to, to get the best people. Employees want their companies to stand for something more than just kind of the short-term profit. They want them to have some set of values. So companies and CEOs are, ser- are you know, quite you know, seriously seeing their uh, employee base, especially millennials and Gen Z, demand more of them. So that creates kind of a, a value equation. They're getting more questions from their customers, like actual business customers, consumers saying, you know, what are you doing? What's your carbon footprint? How are you managing these issues? So that creates a, the, an incentive that's within the normal incentive structure that to do business in this way is going to please more customers, sell more. But there's kind of a macro problem, which is, you know, that the, the and it's, it's what, you know, economists call externalities, that, that companies don't have to pay for certain things that they can use, which is, you know, clean air, water, a stable climate. And so part of what has to happen is we have to price things, price them into the marketplace. And that means basically a price on carbon. That's the number one policy that has to happen across the board, across the world. And it is happening in pockets so that the incentives then, if you make high carbon business, high carbon energy more expensive, the incentive is to move away from it. It's a very natural economic model. That's the kind of uh, policy we need. And I'd like to see more companies, and some do, but see more companies push for that. So they can they can then choose the path of low carbon businesses, and it and it will be cheaper to do that. But how do the big problem we have is the coordination problem. If I know Johnny yeah. and Sally are both cheating on the SAT, mm-hmm. it's harder not to cheat on the SAT. We have a similar right. problem with climate change, where you need everyone in essence to do this. Otherwise, well, shoot, we're trying our best, but darn it, China or darn it, India or darn it, Mexico or darn right. it, the U.S. They they aren't, so we're losing right. out. How do we how do we get rid of that comparative value? Because it seems like governments haven't been able to do this at a effective enough scale well, for people to buy in. Yeah. Well, they're not going to do it in the countries that are led by, you know, people who don't want to do anything about it, which is a bunch of big countries right now. But, you know, that, you know, that statement, I he- I've heard that for many years. Well, what about China? Well, China's actually doing way more than we are. They're investing. Oh, half yeah. No, no. I was using that capital. as an example. Yeah. But, but they could say that, but they could say the same thing about us right now. I mean, the G7 meeting happened. The other large countries met about climate and our president kind of stepped out of the meeting and wasn't interested. It is harder to do stuff without everybody involved. But part of the, the real story here is that it's, it's becoming very quickly better business and cheaper to go down the low carbon path. Renewable energy is now cheaper than fossil fuel energy. So it's not a sacrifice. So it is now the best path. This is the way we will create and are now creating jobs around the world. There are now more people doing solar installations than in oil and gas. So this is the path forward for growth, for the economy, for jobs. The reason I think we don't go as fast as we could is just there's a lot of inertia. There's a lot of vested interests, right? There's some really big companies that 
it, it, it's in their interest to keep things the way they are, to keep the, the economy humming on the fossil fuels that have run it for the last 100, 150 years, even though there's now better alternatives. So, you know, it's not actually a cheating problem. Like it's, it's just getting past kind of the vested interest. And frankly, the, it comes back to policy and politics a lot because there's so much money in our politics that, that you know, certain industries can kind of slow down progress. So I, I, I think the cheating problem has really gone away as the economics for building a cleaner economy have just gotten better and better. What about in terms of the longer term economic play? So I personally like Eric Reese's long term stock exchange companies that can actually try to build towards the future. Basically, mm -hmm. instead of having daily trading, you have quarterly trading to incentivize longer term thinking. But is there a way that we can do that on a larger scale? There's a there's yeah. a great piece. I want to say it was in The Guardian. It was a cartoon. It was two it's two bankers, two somebody, somebody sitting, and the world is there burning. And it's like, well, for a lot of time there, we had a good run. We uh, we made a lot of shareholder value. Right. And yeah, that, yeah. you brought that up before. How do we, is there a way that we can change that without just having it be a decision? Because when push comes to shove, incentives generally win. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've seen that cartoon. It's a guy, I think a guy sitting around with kids around a fire saying, yeah, something like, for a really good time there, we, you know, we had a lot of profit. Uh, and they're in a cave, you know, with nothing around them. I mean, that's that's kind of the extreme view, I guess. I mean, what do you, you know? I, what are you getting at? Like, what's the what the what are the incentives that you're worried about or that you think are kind of? I think the economy. I think the, the economy. Path? I think the economy we have set up is designed to only function when it grows. And I think yeah. when you have something that only function when it grows, it ultimately becomes cancer. So capitalism is yeah. designed for scarcity, but in abundance, it doesn't right. thrive. Yeah, I mean, look, there's there's a, a philosophical truth to this, and then there's just a you know mathematical truth to it, which is you can't keep growing infinitely, right? I mean, every company, so many companies have their targets, their goals of being, we're going to grow at 4%, or we're going to grow at 5%, we're going to grow at 2% faster than the market. You literally can't do that forever, right? You'd eventually be bigger than the planet. You'd have the entire economy yourself. And the same is true for the economy at large. We, you know, what we're facing now is that as we get, you know, we're at 7.3 billion people in the world, we'll probably get to 9 or 10 billion. There's only so much planet. And, and you know, we get pretty innovative about finding materials, you know, finding metals, finding fuels. But there's really only so much stuff to go around. And, and so we have to now build different business models where the growth of the well-being, the growth of, in some sense, material well-being, because there's still a couple billion people without enough stuff, the growth of how much stuff we need has to happen without the growth of materials, energy, water. We have to decouple, right? And that's, that is happening in, in, in many places. There's companies that have done this that continue to increase their production, but reduce their energy use, reduce their water use by getting more and more efficient. 20, 25 of the you know, biggest economies, Western economies, have mostly decoupled growth from carbon. Their carbon emissions aren't growing that much versus the growth of the economy. But what that requires in the long run is building an economy based entirely on renewable energy, building it out of materials that are for, for the most part recycled and renewable, and then having you know the end of life of every product, having a process in place where those materials are brought back into the system so we can slow down the, the draw on virgin resources. We can't keep digging up more and more stuff. And it's actually getting more and more expensive. There, it, there are natural economic incentives to drive that behavior. Um, it is getting harder. Probably not. No. I mean, that's the thing is, is, you know, I said before, renewable energy is now cheaper. That is fundamentally true. And we're moving very quickly to building a renewable energy economy. And we're going to move towards electric vehicles. But it's, it's not enough compared to the, the climate problem. We waited too long. We have to go even faster. And that requires some government intervention. And I think 
some choices from people to consume less in some cases, to consume differently, to you know, move to electric vehicles very quickly to change their diet. You're seeing this incredible growth in alternative proteins, right? All these, all these new burgers. It's a totally fascinating shift going on. And it is actually one of the best things an individual can do to reduce their footprint until there are better kind of agriculture methods that are in the works now and growing. Until that's mainstream, eat less meat from industrial you know, production. Eat some of these alternative you know, burgers and, and meat products and you reduce your kind of daily footprint quite a bit, right? This is one of the things people can do and the options are getting better and better. They taste better, they're cheaper and cheaper. So I feel like we're seeing more and more options for a low carbon, environmentally sound lifestyle. It's getting easier. It's still not easy, but it's getting easier. It is. And with animal agriculture, it's more than all of transportation combined. It's un unreal when you really look into it. We actually have somebody coming on the program right after this. They're, yeah. real, they're doing a, a vegan um, a vegan burger type deal. But it, it, is, it is super interesting. Let me run an idea by you that Douglas Rushkoff had. And one of the big problems he saw was just capital gains versus dividends taxing. Mm -hmm. The way that you're incentivized to grow at all costs because you have lower taxes that you have to pay on capital yeah. gain. What about just inverting those two? I know you deal a lot with big business. What would be your thoughts on how that would change incentives? Well, like yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always a fan. I'm a fan of that. And I've always wondered, as many do, why capital gains is tax lower than work. I mean, there's really no compelling reason for that. Rich, this rich people that, make tax laws. Right. Well, that's the that's the how that happened. But there's there's not really, they've come up with a why. They've come up with a logic, I guess, of fundamentally trickle down, right? We invest more money, everyone wins. Putting It helps us put capital into, into play. But clearly, there's no real logic for that to be different. When you mentioned before, like, how do you incentivize longer term thinking and the idea of, you know, kind of a quarterly trading system? An idea I've always loved is, if, you know, day trading is now, you know, or minute to minute trading is half of the shares, right? I feel like that's easy to fix. It, whatever the capital gains rate is, you could have it be 100% tax for stocks that are traded in, in the same day, 99% for two days. You know, like you could say any short-term trading, it's, it's basically taxed so far that you just don't do it anymore. And then if you hold a stock for 10 years, maybe it's no tax, right? Like you incentivize people to think long-term because part of what drives companies is this constant movement of capital and this constant pressure from investors. And it's part of what I think makes CEO tenure so short is they get pushed out if they're not performing you know, quickly enough. And the only few companies I've seen that have really been able to shift their thinking to longer term, like Unilever over the last decade, they shifted their investor base. They, they told investors, we're going to build for the long term, we're going to think for the long term. And they got more and more institutional investors and more that were willing to wait. And they changed the, the ratio, the turnover ratio of their stock dramatically. They got guys holding it for years now instead of months. And that's the only way I've seen kind of big public companies kind of play with this is just change their investor base. But until we change those tax, if you change those tax laws in those ways, it would, it would just change dramatically how we invest. It would yeah. be fascinating. I, I, I agree that, I mean, day traders are just a drain on the economy, complete yeah. waste. But in terms of that, the, the other way to do it is also the Jesus founder. You have yeah. you have Bezos who can pretty much say right. and do anything and the stock goes up. Or you have Zuckerberg who owns yeah. the, all the voting shares. I'm not sure that's worked out for all of us very well. I don't think it's worked you know. out all of us yeah. for all of us. But I do think it gives him the ability, if he wants to, to have the long-term thinking. Well, look, I, I think, and I've written about this before, family-run businesses, and that's kind of what those guys are now, if they, you know, it's privately held by a small number. They've always been able to do more. I mean, the, the couple of companies that have you know, always led on pushing the boundary on what it is to be a company are generally run by one person, owned by a small number, you know, like Patagonia. 
right? The founder basically owns it, him and his family. And so they're always able to take a different stand, everything from the supplies they use, the material they use too. They shut down all the Patagonia stores on the election day last year so, so their employees could go vote, right? They can take a stand on civic responsibility because they're privately run. They can do what they want. And, and I've seen that with, with family-run companies. They can take a longer view. They do have that ability. And so there's times I'm really tempted to see some big companies just go private and, oh. and, you know, and take themselves out of the public markets. It, there's some pros and cons to it, clearly. There's less accountability. But it's a little bit like, in some cases, a, the benign dictator in, in you know, Plato's terms. The benign dictator is kind of the ideal republic. There's something to that in a way. If you have a family-run business where the, the leaders of the family get it and they want this thing to be around for the long haul for their kids and grandkids, they sometimes are just, you know, they take a more sustainable view. I also want to point out about the election thing. Most all civilized countries actually give their workers the day off for elections so they can know, actually go vote and participate. Well, we are in a fight in this country where there's clearly people who don't want everyone to vote. And it's not easy. The gerrymandering, I mean, there's some really dangerous stuff going on. And I, I think it's interesting to see and, and kind of question whether business needs to be more vocal, you know, about these things. Because I, I, I think there's some companies realizing that a unstable country, one floating towards autocracy or uh, where voting is not easy, is not good for the economy, is not good for business in the, in the long run. And I'm hoping to see some more companies step in. I, I do know that companies have quietly help their own employees. You know, companies have plenty of like DACA employees or immigrant employees, especially certain sectors, you know, hospitality, construction, agriculture, huge immigrant, you know, populations. I've seen some companies quietly kind of help their employees understand their rights, where they can vote. You know, they don't take a stand on who to go vote for or whatever, but they say like, here's your rights. I, I think that's something companies can do to kind of help make this happen and, and give them the, the ability to go vote on those days. If it's not going to be a holiday or a weekend like it is mo in most countries, the companies can help. Yeah. Australia had, used to have two of the same problems the U.S. in terms of voter right. turnout, in terms of guns. They banned guns yeah. and made elections mandatory and suddenly they fixed yeah. both of them. Yeah. Much smaller country, so much easier. But it's yeah. it's interesting when you actually go for it. Speaking of going for it, Green New Deal, where do you see that headed? Is it enough? What are the flaws? Well, I think you have to talk about what, it, what the Green New Deal is. I mean, it, it, the, the original statement from AOC and, and others was a, a strategy document, really, right? A directional set of statements. You're seeing now in the candidates, and I was a big fan of Jay Inslee because um, he had at his core the idea that, if, that we have to see the world through this lens of tackling climate change, and I think he really got it. And his plans were very extensive and detailed. Bernie Sanders just came out with a pretty detailed plan now that, that builds on the Green New Deal. I mean, the original Green New Deal was a strategic kind of set of intentions. As written, is it enough? I mean, they, they put in there the science-based kind of targets. You know, by 2030, we want to basically be, you know, mostly renewable energy. We want to be out of carbon by 2050. You know, they had the right framing, right? The right scientifically based framing. The debates around the Green New Deal have been around whether it tried to put too much into one document, one idea, right? Tried to put the kitchen sink in, all these social goals. It's a really interesting debate, and I, and I do understand why they took that approach. If you believe that climate change is such an existential threat that you need everybody on board and you need to show how it's going to reshape the economy in a way that benefits the majority, then you do have to start talking about the jobs it's going to create, the equality it's going to help uh, initiate. It probably was too broad reaching and bringing in, you know, healthcare and, you know, a, a whole bunch of other kind of progressive agenda items that um, maybe didn't have to be part of that. 
But I think that what was amazing, just, you know, this has been kind of criticism. What's amazing about the Green New Deal was that in the course of a week or two, when it came out, the debate about the scale of action we need jumped enormously, more than it had in years. So it shows that big, bold thinking matters, right? That the level of discussion about how should the economy, how should we think about tackling climate change just moved enormously just from that discussion. So I think it was worth it just for that, even if it never sees the light of day as a specific piece of legislation. So I've had a couple of scientists on here who have paraded against charlatanism and others who have been borderline charlatan. And I, <laughs> I, I wrote an article more or less in favor of charlatanism for huge tech problems because... Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you could kind of use Elon as an example. Elon has accomplished incredible things. He's said even more incredible things. Yeah. But he's also moved the picture. How do you think about that balance and how we how we negotiate that going forward? So, yeah, I mean, that's a good if that's what you mean is kind of the Elon, like we're going to go to Mars by this year. If you mean charlatan, like you're saying some things or we're going to we're going to double we're going to triple our production of cars by X month and then they really can't. If that's what you mean by charlatan is kind of like. A little bit of the, you know, um, that's more, that's more, that's more stock pressure, but more saying we're going to, we're going to replace fossil fuel driven cars through electric cars in 10 years. If it turns out being 20 years, right. You you made the change, but how do you think about the bold audacity to pull people forward versus telling truths? Well, look, I, I'm a, a lot of the work I do with companies is on goal setting and vision and mission. And and I'm always pushing them actually to think much bigger and say something like we'll be 100% renewable in five or 10 years. Because if you shoot big and you get to 80% of it, you've gotten pretty far, right? Versus like, well, we think we can get to 20% renewables. And then you get there and you got there. And this is what's happened over the last five or 10 years is companies set these goals and they've mostly hit them all. It turned out not to be that hard to cut your energy use 10 or 20% because they hadn't really looked at it before, right? I think, and sometimes there, there's there's this thing where if you shoot for going to 100% of something, it actually changes the thinking so much that it forces you to come up with very different solutions. You don't go, oh, we're going to get to 100% by 10, 10% increments. You go, oh, we have to rethink this entirely, right? You know, the the little example I use of that is um, the the companies like Kimberly Clark that make the Scott paper towels and toilet paper without the cardboard rolls in the middle. And it's this little stupid product example of they didn't go, how do we use 10% less cardboard in the middle? They created a roll without the cardboard in the middle. So it just went to zero, right? And there's, there's a, a technology in use by Adidas and Nike that takes water out of the dyeing process for clothing. And that's a bigger scale kind of production issue. They didn't go 10% less, they went to zero. So sometimes I think setting these big, bold goals allows you to think, oh, we have to come up with a new technology or a new business model. And frankly, we're at the point on climate where the science is kind of telling us we got to get to zero pretty quickly. So we might as well make that the goal because there's, we're, we're threatening our own survival if we don't. So I guess if you call it charlatanism, I'm fine with that. <laughs> I mean, if that's because I think we find that we're more innovative than we realize. And, you know, just and taking Elon Musk is such an interesting example because he came out and said, electric cars can be great and sexy and fun. And he made that happen, right? Like, you know, he made it an exciting product for people to own. And so now all these other companies are building their electric vehicle models. It's possible that Tesla goes out of business, right? It's possible they don't make it. Their cash flow gets too short. But that doesn't mean they, that doesn't mean they failed, right? It's, it's, they still built this whole system of interest around electric vehicles that made it sexy. So I, I think a little bit of um, kind of Ringling Brothers <laughs> Barker stuff is, is good. 
You got to we got to paint a picture that's exciting and new and very different. And then if we miss by a little, we're still a lot further than we would have been. I completely agree. I work yeah. with a lot of startups and businesses and I tell them, take your goals and 10 exit. Now mm-hmm. take those goals and 10 exit. Yeah. It's not going to take 100 times the effort to get there. It'll take almost right. the same exact amount. It's just a different type of thinking. And I well, think it that- makes you think in systems and you got to work with partners, suppliers, customers. You got to think bigger right? That's sometimes a problem is, is uh, easier if, it, if you make it bigger, if you think in, in bigger terms. It is. And just taking those extra constraints can be very, very valuable. What technology yeah. or trend are you most excited about and why? I mean, there's so many in the clean technology world that are exciting. It's, it's hard to pick. I, I guess, you know, the one that's been uh, the, the kind of toughest to see the path forward until recently has been just energy storage. And there's just so much happening and the prices are dropping so much that I, it's very exciting because it's enabling the grid to go green even quicker because if you have big storage, you can have the sun and wind you know, blowing and shining when they're, when they're doing that. And it's bringing down the cost of electric vehicles. So that technology alone is really amazing. I also find wonky things like um, building management systems. I mean, it's really, you know, very data intensive, but these very simple systems that measure buildings and then make them much more efficient because we use so much energy in buildings. And then there's also just the whole world of regenerative agriculture. This is this new realm of can we use cows and cattle and the way we rotate crops to actually sequester carbon. There's a decent chance that the way we're going to tackle climate change is actually through different agriculture, not industrial agriculture, but a different form. Those are all really exciting technologies. And the the different form of agriculture is more or less, you don't poop where you eat, and animals didn't either in the past. They always moved around while they were grazing. Right. They and move around. Well, and they ate grass. They didn't eat corn. They didn't eat soy, right? They ate grass. They pooped. They moved on. Other animals came in and grew, and it grew more grass. You know, they rotate them around. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's actually going back to a very old... It's very funny that sustainability technologies are often just plays on things we've known for thousands of years, right? We, you build buildings with southern exposure. Like People are like, wow, that's exciting. It's like, well, we've known that for quite a while. You know, it's, The sun's been in the same place for a long time. And we've also known that working together, you have a better, stronger team, and yet collaboration. I know that's something you're big on and something yeah. that we struggle with both on a government and a business yeah. sense. What does the future of collaboration look like and how can we empower that to make it more effective, especially between government and business? I thought you were going to say between business and business, which I feel much more optimistic about. I, I mean, between government and business, it's really challenging. I mean, we are, I, I, you know, it depends so much on who's in power and, and the nature of the nature of the relationship between kind of the, the regulatory need, the slap on the wrist side with business and then the kind of pro, you know, public private investment. I guess I, because there's so much uncertainty about what nationalism and populism means for governments around the world, who's in power where, I, I have more belief, or at least I spend more of my time you know, thinking about how companies work together. And that seems to be moving in really interesting directions. There's just more and more examples of companies coming together in, in different ways, often with competitors. They might come together in groups to kind of uh, promote principles around buying renewable energy or managing e-waste or just a whole set of different issues. And they can work with competitors because they might be working on a systemic issue where it's better that everybody work on this together. Like Levi's just put out publicly open sourced a bunch of technologies and ideas on saving water. They realized, you know, they need the whole industry to use less water because there's such water scarcity issues. It's better to just share what they're learning. And so I think that's kind of exciting to me that we're seeing companies say, okay, it's a dog eat dog world. We're competing and all that, but there's a whole set of things we can do together to try to change the system. So we all are, as I said, decoupling growth from stuff that we can do this as, a, as an economy and as a sector. I think we need more of that. 
And I'd like to see, and we're seeing more companies working with their own suppliers and, and just innovating together, just saying, how do we change the whole value chain of this product? So we design it differently, it uses less, less energy and material, and we can recycle it at the end. Those kinds of innovations in how companies work together, I think, continue to grow. And we have more and more tools and, and better and better data and more transparency up and down the value chain to, to trade information and data to make that uh, an easier process. Do we need some type of ranking score? So for instance, they have organic, they have GMO, they have fair trade, they have these different labeling organizations. Do we need something around circular economics or percent recycled? Yeah, I mean, there is some of that, right? In certain products, you can see labels on on that show the percent of recycled content. Circularity is so tough. And there's been a couple great studies that have tried to say, like, how circular is the economy? It's it's a pretty amorphous subject. I I think you're right. I think we need better metrics you know, better measurement of what we mean by how circular is something, but it is a really difficult question. I think for the for the time being, the 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 data that's that's being kind of captured and transferred to customers and to suppliers is around carbon footprint, water use, even on the social side, spending in the in the supply chain on um, diversity and supply chains. Like we're we're gathering more and more data and getting a better picture of the value chain of a product. I think we will get there on metrics around circularity, but it is really challenging. Do you live in one of the states where if you go into a restaurant, it tells you how many calories on whatever item? Yeah, in some of the in some settings, yeah, we see that. I, I think that's cool. I feel like it incentivizes people to eat less. Do we need to have something similar in terms of carbon footprint for every product? Yeah, there's been talk about doing some kind of carbon footprint label on on products, and there's been some few examples of of vol- kind of companies doing that voluntarily. Uh, yeah, I think that would be useful. It's um again, it's pretty difficult to do to say like how many grams of carbon emitted for this one product. I think it would be useful, but only if it's um if it's data that people know how to you look have to at trust it. or that they trust it, but also that they even know how to like what does it mean if this shoe was 73 grams? Like it's just it's a little bit of this. We do have that same problem with some of the nutrition label stuff, right? I think we've all gotten more educated, but it is hard to know, like, how many grams of carbohydrates should I be worried about? <laughs> you know, like, it's, I, I think those, the data helps, but it, it's only as useful as how educated people are about what it means. But they'll never learn unless they see. And small, right. Smaller is better. I'm just playing, no, look, I'm, I'm playing I'm big on trans- No, I'm big on transparency. I think I'm always in favor of more data because some percentage of people will find it helpful. And I think it, it forces, what it forces companies to do is to build the systems to measure, right? And when you measure something, then you can manage it and you have to put a number out, even if it's kind of meaningless. If it's 100 today, you're like, we should get that number down to 80. We should get, you know, it helps you drive change. So yeah, I'm all in favor of putting numbers on things as long as they're kind of based in reality. And it also incentivizes people for less, even though they only know that less is good. People want a higher grade because it's a higher number. I think, yeah. we, I think we could gamify it a little bit. That would be fun. Yeah. I want to ask you one more thing before we jump into the lightning round. Yeah. And that is infrastructure and what the future of infrastructure looks like. Is it yeah. mainly owned by government? Is it a collective commons? Is it owned in a libertarian sense by companies? <laughs> I, I wouldn't say it's my specialty, but I, I think about infrastructure and I worry about it a lot because I think we're failing on it. I mean, I, I see it in my own state in Connecticut. The, we've outgrown the roads. I-95, you know, which runs from Maine to Florida, is congested in most of it and um, incredibly congested where we are. We don't spend on this kind of shared good. I have a hard time seeing most forms of infrastructure being privately run. We, we've tried deregula- deregulation and, and privatization, but, you know, things like roads, you know, the, the railroad, even the internet 
especially in a big country like the U.S. that's so spread out, you know, geographically, it is not economic to build roads and railroads into the most remote areas. It isn't. It's it's a shared society build out, right? It's 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 something the government does. I think infrastructure is fundamentally a government function because it rarely makes money. I mean, train systems. We're always complaining in, in D.C. that the Amtrak doesn't make money, but most train systems can't make money. They're there to to be a support structure for the economy. So people and goods can move, right? And I think you see it in countries with really good train systems. Of course, they're run basically by the government through through tax systems. So I generally think infrastructure has got to be done at the, at the largest scale, and that's, and that's government. I mean, it doesn't mean they don't hire private contractors to build some of it, right? That's who's going to build this stuff. But I just don't think privatizing most infrastructure is really going to work. It's got to be a a shared commons kind of thing. Well, I mean, if you look at it, has it worked better in the US or Europe? And that one's a pretty easy, pretty easy slam dunk. It's worked better in Europe for education, infrastructure, transportation. One last question before you tell people where to find you. Quote, a call to action, something that you want to leave people with. It can be anything. Look, people ask me all the time what they can do about climate or what they can do to be, you know, more involved. And there's a short list I mentioned before, how you eat, how you drive, all that stuff. But really, the, the main call to action now is how you vote. I mean, we're, we're always afraid to be partisan, whatever that means. But the reality is, as much as business can do, and that's my work is focused on business, and as much as individuals can do, we need systemic change. We need better policy. And we need people in power who actually believe climate change is a problem and want to do something about it. And in, and in America right now, unfortunately, that fundamentally means at the national level, it's different. it is different at the local, state, and city level. At the national level, that means, for the most part, Democrats. <laughs> I mean, I hate to say it, but, but we've had many years now of Republican national politicians playing around the edges on climate change, but not really wanting to do anything. And until I see some change on that, I have to say, vote, vote differently and get out there. It's the number one thing we can do. I like it. Take action in as many ways as you can, yeah. but don't overwhelm yourself if you can't do everything. Yeah. Thanks for coming on today, Andrew. Where can people find Thank out you. more about you? Check out all the good stuff. Yeah. So my website is just my name, andrewwinston.com. Um, about to relaunch a new website soon, but um, you can get the basics there, my books, my writing, my blogs. And I, you know, I, I post pretty much everything I write there. So you can sign up for my, my blog, get it on a feed or get it into your inbox. And then you'll see everything I write. I write regularly for Harvard Business Review. You'll find me there and at uh, MIT Sloan Management Review. I'm online with both of those regularly. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, Andrew. And Thank guys, you. Guys, if you've enjoyed this, the most valuable, awesome thing for, that you can do for us is to share this with a friend, family member, someone you think might enjoy it, might learn from it. Climate change is a big problem. We're trying to tackle big problems here. And the biggest thing you can do for us is help us get more people in this movement. Thanks for coming and thanks for tuning in, Andrew. Thank you. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoy this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day. If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.